Great question. The Manufacturing Podcast offers news and information for the people who make, store, and move things, and those who manage and maintain the facilities where that work gets done. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Great Question, a manufacturing podcast. I'm Tom Wilk, the Chief Editor of Plant Services. And today we're going to answer the question, what is the state of the supply chain in North America and beyond? And I'm really excited to have with us today Jason Manganero, who's the VP of Commercial Technology for the Americas at Sparks Logistics, who are headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina in the U.S., and his global headquarters is located in Hong Kong. Jason, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Well, now, Jason's headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, and that's where Jason and I met about two decades ago. Uh, We were both in an academic program at Ohio State University. Um, I was in the Master's of Literature. He was in the Master of Fine Arts program. And since then, we've taken these winding career paths that have led us to this point where we're talking about heavy industry and supply chains. Kind of hard to believe, Jason. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting how uh, how the world works. I always say on the I'm sure it's similar on your side of things, but on the logistics side, uh, I have yet to meet someone in our age group who says I, uh, you know, wanted to be in logistics and I studied logistics and then I got a job in logistics. It's always I started off doing X and that led to Y and Z and then I got a job in logistics and now I've been doing it for 20 years or 30 years or whatever it is. So. You know, it's funny how in my industry, once people take on a certain publication, kind of like you're talking about with logistics, you scratch the surface of any industry a little bit, and suddenly you find out there's a whole wealth of information, not only to talk about, but to report on. I had no idea in the world of heavy machinery asset management that I'd be working for nine plus years now. And there's still plenty to say about this topic. So I'm assuming the same with logistics on your end. Absolutely. No, that's one of the things that I really like about it is it's it's you know, it's fast paced. It's very interesting. There's always something new, always a new challenge, um, always a new development. And anytime that you feel like things are getting static and steady, get ready because some some new turn is around the corner. Well, usually in these podcasts, Jason, before we tackle the big question, we'll start with uh, uh, a simple one about you and your and your job. Maybe not so simple. Um, just tell us about yourself and your role with Sparks Logistics and maybe a project or initiative that you've been working on recently. Sure. No, my pleasure, Tom. So um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm uh, involved with the commercial technology side of things. So I see my role as basically uh, evaluating the technology that we bring into the company um, for internal use to make us uh, more lean, more, uh, you know, optimally uh, set up to to handle the challenges of the industry and then find ways to kind of turn that outward and turn it into solutions for customers, uh, opportunities to kind of uh, fine tune things that we're doing today, um, add new capabilities that are that are in demand or that are going to address the challenges that are emerging in the industry and so forth. So um, that's kind of my my general role in it. Um, you mentioned, you know, my background is uh, in marketing, uh, sales, uh, key account management and creative writing, which, uh, you know, sometimes comes in handy when we're trying to, you know, d- uh, figure out how to describe a new service offering or a new solution or something that's, you know, a little bit outside of the mold in terms of, um, you know, uh, what we're bringing to the table versus what exists today. So 
Uh, in terms of a specific challenge um, or a specific project you mentioned, one of the things that uh, we're kind of in the middle of now, I would say at the tail end of, uh, is that during COVID, we took a hard look at the technology platform that we utilize. Um, and I will say that uh, the company that I work with, we've we've actually just celebrated our 10 year anniversary, but there's several of us who work together in a previous company. So I've got 20, 25 years of experience with some of the folks and very happy to you know have that kind of history and teamwork with with my colleagues here. Um, but one of the things that came up with Sparks pretty early on was, you know, we wanted to do the same type of freight forwarding and logistics management business, but we wanted to do it a little differently than we'd done with the old company. The old company was more traditional and we wanted to really put a lot of emphasis on technology and on running a lean organization and really trying to be at the forefront of what's coming next in the industry, right? So from that standpoint, um, during COVID, we really took a hard look at some of the technology solutions we had, which really I would consider were in that kind of best best in class tier of what was available in the industry. But we were thinking about well, what's next and what are the things that are going to become more important. And we really kind of dug in and looked at uh, putting some enhancements into the program. And that's that's kind of the project that we've uh, we've been working on. We're in year three of it, um, completed phase one and phase two right now. And um, again, just kind of to push for um, staying at the forefront of visibility tools and analytics and ways to take all of the massive amount of data that you collect in the supply chain and make it actionable and um, the basis for smart decisions by clients. It sounds like a real familiar story in the asset management side too. I'm sure you've heard this from plant managers. Uh, one that's a similar problem they're wrestling with is just the vast amounts of data that are now available to collect, much less process and, and draw some actionable insights from. And you've been working in that in that area in logistics, trying to to understand better how all the data that your teams are collecting can help uh, streamline and make more efficient this this process of moving things around. Yeah, absolutely. No, there, there's there's complete alignment in those two areas. I mean, I think you're right, Tom. It's there's there's so much data available to us. It, it's not an issue of collecting data at this point. I think mm -hmm. it's it's an issue of sifting through, um, separating the good, clean data from the problematic data. That's been a big part of what we do as well. Um, because just because you have data, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's the kind of data that you can make decisions on. So a lot of what we're doing is, you know, finding counterpoints to the data to make sure that we can verify the information that we're getting, look at it from different angles and try to come to some source of, you know, uh, I'll call it source of truth, but it's really to do more with, um, you know, the best possible a data point for something that you're trying to determine and and then you know how do you compare that to what was expected how do you translate that into cost savings opportunities efficiency you know things that you can really uh, you know kind of make an impact on your bottom line and on the operation of your of your plant of your business well you mentioned a couple of uh impacts that COVID had had on your profession and on your daily workflow um what would you say are one or two lasting changes that we've seen now having been through that three-year hiccup, so to speak, mm -hmm. with COVID? Sure. So, no, I mean, I think the, the name of the game for probably almost a decade before COVID was just-in-time fulfillment, right? 
you could move goods cheaply, you could purchase them cheaply in other parts of the world, and everyone got in kind of a mode of holding very lean inventory, expecting that, hey, if I need that part, um, if, I, if I'm running low on stock, I can get something here really quickly, really inexpensively, so there's no reason to, you know, hold a tremendous amount of, of, of spare parts and things like that. Uh, but I think COVID really turned that on its ear. You know, first there was uh, the difficulty of, um, you know, just kind of the the spread of it, right? And the shutdown of of business and transportation and activity in the different countries. Then it was, well, um, things are opening up, but we don't have any, for example, on the ocean side of things, empty shipping containers to move goods. Then it was, well, we can get them there, but once we, you know, they arrive at destination, there's nobody to offload them. Or there's, you know, a huge backlog of stuff that's already been sitting that hasn't been worked. And now we're piling more containers onto that. Then it was, you know, these warehouses are overrun with the amount of goods that are coming in. So it just was a complete like rolling imbalance, right, of, of resources and manpower and capabilities. Um, so I feel like that really turned um, just in time kind of uh, to be part of the past. Um, I don't know that it will never come back, but I feel like, you know, we've seen customers really beef up on their safety stock, which led to, you know, as things started to somewhat normalize in the last year, year and a half, drawing down all this excess inventory, which kind of threw off their buying patterns and their sourcing patterns and things like that. Uh, but I think that really the um, the biggest part of it uh looking forward that's kind of looking to the past kind of just in time versus where we are now mm -hmm. but uh, looking forward i think you know what we see is really a need to kind of build that agility that flexibility into your supply chain um you know there's a lot of ways to achieve that um you know diversity of sourcing i think really came into play that started before the pandemic that started really with those uh China tariffs that were driving up some of the cost of, of sourcing certain goods, uh, the tariffs on steel and aluminum and so forth, people started to look at other places to bring in materials from and started to kind of diversify their, their sourcing by country, by vendor, things like that. Coming along with that is a diversity of routings, and I can get into that a little bit more when we talk about some of the challenges that are facing the industry today. But, you know, how do I get the goods from my sourcing country uh, to the U.S.? Um, are, are there various ways? Are there various modes? What do I do if this if this way gets clogged? Do I have a backup? Things like that. Um, and then, of course, you know, my piece is the technology part to have you know, the best visibility, the most fine-tuned visibility on what's in your supply chain, where it is, and at any given point to be able to steer it left or right if things aren't kind of moving along the way that you'd like them to be. You know, one anecdote, which to align with what you're saying, I know a plant guy who worked in a chip coating application facility mm -hmm. um, in, in Pennsylvania. And in response to the sort of unsteady supply chain, he said that mm -hmm. their facility didn't experience any downtime due to the lack of raw materials coming in. But their challenge at the time, this is about 18 months ago, was to stay nimble enough with the product with the with the product lines that they could take whatever material came in on the dock on Friday mm -hmm. and put it into process on Monday. Sure. And it was difficult to predict what it would be so their weekend teams got very good at taking the lines down cleaning the lines preparing them for the new for the new product and then doing that um now that's eased up a little bit but when you talked about the uncertain sourcing of materials that brought to mind uh th this guy who's 
whose team wasn't hadn't ever expected to had to become good at being nimble like that. Right. But, uh, and, and and they worked very hard to be more proactive about things. And they said, okay, time to time to dust off the reactive skills and uh, mm-hmm. and and get the lines ready for what we got. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And and you know the way I see it is like when you think about that from a macro standpoint, you know how it kind of throws off the whole supply and demand dynamic that you usually run a business by, right? Um, now you're like, rather than, okay, this is what my customers need, therefore I'm going to produce these quantities of it. It's almost like, this is what I've got to produce with, so therefore here's what I'm going to produce and like, you know, throw it out there into the market, right? It, it It's um it, it's kind of, you know, not exactly the way we like to do business, right? And um, I feel like that's, but that's the kind of thing that COVID, I think, necessitated in a lot of businesses is you had to get creative. You had to do what you could with what was available to you. You had to think of different ways of doing business. You had to accommodate remote work. And um, like you said, kind of, you know, adjusting on the fly to production and things like that, that, you know, I think in concept, we always kind of talked about, well, if this ever happened, we would do X, Y, Z. But when it actually happened and when it lasted so long, I think it just really uh, caused a lot of businesses to take a hard look at the way they do things and, and figure out, you know, there were certainly negatives. We can talk all day about the negatives, but I think mm-hmm. there were some positives on the business side and even, you know, sometimes on the personal side, we spent more time with our families. Um, you know, we got to kind of, you know, reassess the way that we're spending our time sometimes, right, based on uh, the results of COVID. And then from a business standpoint, it, you know, some companies found out things that were capable of that that they didn't know they were capable of until they were forced into that position. Um, and it's good to know those things, right? That you can um, you can be flexible, you can up production, you can uh, shift the way that you're doing things if needed. It just makes us more resilient, I think, for the next time that big crisis hits. Hopefully it is 100 years from now, as they said, COVID was going to be a 100-year, you know, kind of virus cycle. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, that, there's a guy who's going to give a presentation at a professional event in May, and his presentation is going to be called why we do the right things for liability uh, for the wrong reasons. And <laughs> his point was that uh, one of the rollover effects from COVID was that people got their storerooms in place because they were tired of fighting long lead times. And as, as you said, they right. were, people, were getting, people were starting to treat uh, inventory instead of just in time as just in case. Right. And you sure. keep more things on site. And, and so, you know, a, a more efficient storeroom does lead to greater reliability because you have the parts in place to reduce surprise downtimes, of course. Sure. But his point was, you know what? It was the right thing, but it happened to be the wrong trigger, right? It was, right. It was this crisis <laughs> we were in. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Sometimes that's what it takes, right? Like sometimes it's the pressure of, you know, having to do it that makes us do that thing, right? That we yeah. we know we should be doing and haven't been able to dedicate the time, the resources, the budget to. So yeah, I, I it's a funny way to look at it, but I, I agree that's probably a good outcome. So, well, this is the point in the conversation when I lobbed the great question at you, okay? And okay. this is, uh, the great question for today was, what's the state of the supply chain, um, especially in North America, but maybe beyond? And let me frame it in a very specific way. Can you help our listeners understand the degree to which supply chains have remained less predictable than they were before COVID, uh, especially in North America? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. It is, it is a complex question. Um, I would say that, you know, one of the things that I personally gave up on in the early days of, of COVID was predicting, right? How long is it going to last? When are things going to get back to normal? 
what are the prices going to do? You know, the, the the shipping rates, are they going up? Are they going down? Because every time I made a prediction, the thing that I thought was just a completely unreasonable answer ended up being what happened, right? So um, I think that one of the uh, one of the big outcomes, uh, you know, we reached a level, unfortunately, and again, you know, we move a lot of air freight, we move a lot by rail and truck, but most of our our volume is moved by ocean so i always kind of think of ocean primarily and i think you know really globally that's the the primary way that goods are still moved so when i think about ocean uh and, and uh, what we went through during covid really the rates reached record highs the service level and schedule uh, reliability reached record lows that's really the the best snapshot of where we ended up um at the time when things were hitting their worst, I think there was a lot of talk saying, well, listen, we've crossed the threshold that we're never going to get back, you know, behind. Rates are never going to get back to where they were back in, you know, the, the good old days of, you know, 2018, 2019. And then they did. <laughs> Last year, we did hit, you know, rate levels that got back to that level. Um, but uh, what what came along with that was that, you know, as soon as new disruptions started to come into the market, uh, you know, things started to creep up again. And I think, you know, we we thankfully have not hit anything close to those record highs, but we are kind of, you know, creeping back up the last several months. Um, I would say in terms of the state of the supply chain today, especially, you know, related to North America, there's a series of things that uh, people are probably aware of, but I'll just touch on them real quickly. So Panama Canal, um, there was a big drought in, in uh, Central America and in Northern uh, South America last year. Um, they waited uh, for, you know, a few kind of signs of possible relief, the rainy season, uh, hurricane season, there were a couple of big storms that kind of hit the area that they thought might replenish the water levels, but it, it didn't happen. So the uh, water levels at the Panama Canal are, you know, uh, abnormally and dangerously low right now. They've mm -hmm. had to restrict the number of uh, vessels that are crossing, the mm -hmm. weight and the load levels of those vessels to ensure that they don't have any, you know, incidents. So um, this is something that's kind of been a slow build. Um, you know, we saw it in the summer, things didn't improve by the fall. And, you know, as as is kind of predictable, uh, ocean carriers started to make plans to uh, adjust to this situation, knowing that, you know, the next rainy season is not going to start until probably March or April of this year. Uh, by the time the even if it's a typical rainy season, you know, water levels aren't going to get back to their normal levels until probably the summer. So this is a kind of a long term or, a, you know, say, let's say like a year long challenge, right, that we need to overcome. So, you know, naturally, they looked at their options, started to divert some of those routings away from Panama, then it was all going to add, you know, uh, a predictable uh, and not unreasonable amount of time. This all is being, you know, these decisions are being made in, say, October of November or November of last year. Then the issues happen uh, with Israel and, and Gaza and uh, the attacks happening in the Red Sea on commercial vessels. That led the Suez Canal to no longer be uh, kind of a, a, a preferred way of routing cargo because, you know, the danger to vessels and crew and so forth. So now you've got a lot of an unusual amount of volume that would normally go through the Panama Canal is now rerouted to the Suez Canal and can't go through the Suez Canal. So now those vessels are going down around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, which is, you know, South Africa and coming to the East Coast that way. So now what you're talking about is added days on the water, added fuel cost, added pollution, unfortunately, emissions, and, uh, you know, 
added added uh, transit time basically. So I think we when we did our uh, kind of estimates on it, it's something like seven to ten days in the best case of added uh, transit days when you go around Africa versus through the Suez. Already a longer route, and now you're making it longer and more costly because there's also you know additional costs involved in going that way. Um, so that's kind of where we are today. Um, couple that with the traditional you know Lunar New Year holiday that's coming up. It's a little bit late this year. It's on the 10th of February. Uh, you know China shuts down. A lot of other parts of of Asia shut down during that holiday. So there's a big ramp up up of uh, production around this time of year. Then factories start to close down. People start to clear out, and then things kind of pick up. Uh, second half of February, that's put some additional pressure on things. Um, so, you know, between all of these things that we're talking about, you know, the 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 kind of choking off of a couple of major gateways, uh, the rerouting of cargo, and then, of course, when everything going to the East Coast starts to get problematic, um, people start to rush to the West Coast. So you've also got a big surge of extra volume to the West Coast. The opposite happened uh, about a year ago when they were having those labor issues on the West Coast and negotiating the contract. People started to favor the East Coast. Now it's kind of shifted back. So all this to say, you know, again, it's an interesting world with logistics, right? Uh, there's always something to some new crisis, some new fire to deal with. And um, that's kind of where we are today. Um, you know, what we're anticipating, I think, in general, is that the volume levels have not risen to kind of obscenely high levels. Demand is still a little bit tamped down from where it was uh, probably previous, you know, uh, Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year type uh, periods. But because of all these other issues, restrictions on space, uh, loadability of vessels, uh, you know, delays on, for example, getting empty containers back to Asia, all of these things kind of trickle down like dominoes and one affects the other. So what we're looking at is, you know, we we anticipate that during Chinese New Year, there'll be a little bit of a breath, um, you know, production ceases for a few weeks and, and, and we'll see maybe a little bit of a catch up. It'll probably be probably be a little rough coming out of the holiday just because of, you know, all of the pressure put on the front end of it. But we're, we're hoping that by March and by April, things will start to ease a little bit. I don't think they're going to ease tremendously. I don't think we're going to see rates just tank or anything like that i think it's going to be kind of a more of a moderation happening and then mm -hmm. um in, in the world of you know u.s trans-pacific contracts uh the season is uh may 1st through uh, april 30th that's how the contract season runs so we'll be creeping up on that may 1st date to negotiate next year's contracts as well so uh, there's going to be some influence on that as well in terms of um you know how things are running where the rate levels are on the, on the spot market and then what the demand level is going into the rest of the year so um yeah that kind of in a nutshell is where we are right now you know it's it's uh i i i I hate to kind of give the gloom and doom version of it because um, I tend to be more optimistic and, and try to be, you know, look for some of the bright side of this. Um, I, I think that we are probably going to land at rate levels and kind of volume levels and capacity levels that are more sustainable after all of this. Um, that's the hope. I think if, if we do arrive at that more sustainable level, at least until the next crisis, I think it will be kind of better for the market in general. So, you know, let's hope that's where we're headed after all this. What kind of innovations do you see coming around the corner in this specific area? I think anything from driverless trucks moving from intermodal point to intermodal point to new energy efficient trade routes. I, I'm curious to know, you know, what, what, what do you see as the big innovations that might be around the corner for us? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, the, the big one that we talk a lot about is the kind of an extension of this um, real time visibility of where your stuff is. Okay. So, you know, we have all different kinds of uh, abilities to track on the macro level, like if you're looking at a vessel, a plane, uh, a rail car, things like that, you, you can get pretty close. There's there's geofencing. You can kind of, you know, figure out where things are. But once you get to that last mile, uh, you know, it gets more difficult, right? You're usually dealing with like an individual movement. It's on a truck. It's, uh, you know, on a trailer. Uh, it's on a chassis, things like that. So um, the ability to get that last mile tracking as precise as we have the other phases, I think that's something that's coming. We're seeing more and more uh, GPS type devices that are coming to the market that are more affordable. You know, we're looking at things like atta attaching GPS devices to chassis or to containers. Mm. We're wow. looking at um, tapping into the ELD logs that drivers have to use that monitors, you know, the number of hours that they can be active during the day. All that yep. data goes into centralized sources and you can tap into that in some cases and use that to kind of, you know, see where those trucks are at any given moment, right? Because it's feeding the data all day long. Yeah. Um, so those are a couple of the things uh, from a kind of a track and trace standpoint. Um, the other one we're hearing a lot about, we haven't really had personal experience with this yet, but is robotics, right? Robotics and warehouses. You know, we see it on the manufacturing side. It's been it's been in effect forever with manufacturing, but on the you know warehouse distribution center side, um, you know, even I would say more so than the driverless vehicles. Um, that's also coming for sure. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I can see that more in like a. You know, a lot of the big ports, for example, uh, there's a separation between where the uh, containers get off of the vessel and then where they need to go to either be staged for pick being picked up by trucks or being put on chassis where mm -hmm. they need to be staged to be put on a rail. And, and you've got just a lot of vehicles tied up in this back and forth of moving things, you know, from one part of the port to the other. It's a very very defined area. It's a secure area. Um, to me, it seems like a natural place where you could start to put in this driverless operation because you don't have foot traffic. You don't have a lot of cross traffic. You know, it's it's very well managed. So it's it's a it's the kind of environment where you could see it being, you know, part of the equation and not being as dangerous as it would be like on the open road, for example, as you're still fine tuning the technology. Well, the every other year automates trade show is coming to Chicago in March and April. Mm -hmm. So I now I'm really excited to go see what they have in terms of warehouse uh, robotics and AGVs yeah. and, and technology like that, based on what you just said. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, I've seen some pretty neat stuff. I mean, like I said, we haven't really applied it yet um, in our warehouses that we operate. But uh, but then again, I mean, not in the robotic sense, but we do have a lot of really cool next level equipment for like emptying containers and like, you know, uh, racking and things like that, that are, you know, I, I would say uh, a couple of steps ahead of what you would have seen a couple of years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that robotics is, I think, the next frontier. And, and that's where you're like really mimicking, you know, human practices with a machine um, and, and something that you can basically program it to do the activities and oversee it that way versus, uh, you know, a, a more manual mas machine that you have to dictate every move that it makes. So, well, well to my listeners, uh, we have been listening to Jason Manganero, who is a VP of commercial technology for the Americas at Sparks Logistics, and he's been answering great questions about supply chain for us today. Jason, thank you so much for taking so much time and explaining about advances, not just in supply chain routing and logistics, but 
the greater visibility, which I think a lot of plants are about to imminently enjoy if they aren't already into how their parts are getting to their plants. Thank you so much, Tom. Pleasure was mine.